You're about to listen to a Gods and Movie Makers bonus episode. As promised in our season one finale, we will be releasing all of our bonus chats where we talk to our guests about pedagogy, research and film. We recommend listening to our main episode before this bonus chat for the full context of our discussion. For more information about the podcast, the films discussed and reading suggestions, head on over to our website, godsandmoviemakers.com. And now for our bonus chat with Matt Page. Hello to our lovely subscribers. We're back with Matt Page, Bible and film expert, and we're here to talk about The Last Temptation of Christ and pedagogy. Welcome back, Matt. Hi, nice to be back. So would you use The Last Temptation in a classroom or any other teaching platform? I've used it in in lots of con- in lots of different contexts in in lots of different ways from actual church services through to kind of university lectures. I would use different bits depending on context and be careful about how I do that because I think certainly for people of faith they do find it very the temptation seem particularly very very offensive. I've never shown I don't think I've ever shown it the whole film to the group but certainly I've used different clips in different places. So I think you do need to be careful and be trying to kind of get your head around why you're using it and what point you're trying to make and be aware I mean you can decide for yourselves whether you want to be sensitive to people's potential triggers or whether you think that people maybe could do challenging a bit on things but I think you have to be aware of that I've got a friend who is quite a devout Catholic and he kind of says that while on the one hand he kind of recognizes that the film is is not as outrageous in terms of its theological statements as it could be his description of it was basically like someone had kind of taken all your all your worst images and Put them on the screen, mm. and he had yeah he had a very strong strong metaphor for that in terms of you know how he felt about about the imagery in it. So I think you do need to be careful of that. But yeah, I've used it in lots of lots of different contexts, particularly the the Sermon on the Mount scene. I think is is a really or the Sermon on the Plain scene, I should say. I think works really well for everything from church groups to uh, more kind of theological biblical studies type stuff you know on different levels i think and when you're using let's take that as an example is that to kind of illustrate maybe some of the setting behind perhaps the biblical text or are you using it to explore a theme or does it vary depending on your audience yeah i mean it varies depending on the audience i guess what i i mean it's that bit and the the stoning of the aborted stoning of, of mary which we'll come back onto in a minute but i think with the sermon on on the plane I mean, I was going to say it's so spontaneous. Obviously, it's still scripted and practiced, <laughs> but it gives this impression of spontaneity, which some Jesus films have also kind of captured, but maybe not quite in the same way. Often, that scene in Jesus films is a, it's a set piece moment, and now we're going to bring on the spiritual sound and music, and we're doing blessed are the meek and blessed are the poor and all this kind of stuff. Whereas here, Defoe is very much saying it as if the words are coming to him as he's saying it. In fact, that's actually. The bit immediately before it, he kind of says, you know, I'm just going to, I can't remember the exact quote, but I'm just going to talk and, and God, yeah, will, God provides the words. and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting as an idea of that because both Matthew and Luke's version of those words are both very stylized and they're stylized differently from one another, which is very interesting. It's possible. There's nothing to say Jesus couldn't sit there and, and stylize that himself. I kind of tend to think if he had three years doing this stuff, then... He would certainly have reused material and reworked material and, and got it into a better format. But I think generally we tend to imagine that he was probably a bit more spontaneous. And maybe that's maybe that's an error on our part from a historical angle. But I think certainly the perspective of most of the church people I know 
or I have known over the years, they kind of like that idea of Jesus being a bit spontaneous. And I guess for more kind of theologically astute or more theologically interested groups, it hints on that idea of oral tradition behind the text and, and the kind of a process of the words that Jesus was speaking becoming the gospel and becoming the bible so yeah i think it's a really good passage from that it's interesting in some way you've got like there's a bit of call and response going on yeah some of those moments it's almost like if you read perhaps the sermon on the mount and there seems maybe quite a radical change in topic or theme Mm. you imagine in that moment that there's an audience member saying well you know feed us first and then (laughs) then we'll talk about that so it's a very it's like an engaging way of thinking about how are these lessons i guess how is this midrash mm-hmm. coming into being and it does seem like especially when he starts to it's like, forgive me if i talk in parables and you kind of okay yeah. i feel it's kind of fairly common but anyway go ahead yeah. and then he has that he he's almost flailing around a little bit until he settles mm. on like what his inspiration is so it's yeah. quite a nice moment of seeing that on screen. So this is round one, and by the time the end of his ministry, presumably he's practised it a lot. <laughs> it yeah, sounds a bit yeah. more like the Sermon on the Mount we know, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, another bit I've used was the bit just before that, which is the Stony of Mary. And one of the ways I've used this passage is, I don't know whether either of you are familiar with there's a book called The Jesus I Never Knew by a guy called Philip Yancey, which was very influential on me because he basically talks about Jesus films quite a lot. He, he was the first time I'd kind of heard someone talk about Son of Man uh, and does a great bit on the Pasolini Jesus film. But what he has done over the years is talking about a particular passage is show a number of different versions of that story. And I think it's probably the most, aside from that kind of crucifixion itself, it's probably the most done story is the story of the woman accused of adultery and so i've used it as one of the clips there because again i think it's it's a very individual one it has mark scorsese's stamp all over it you know jesus actually getting hit by rocks um and getting come back and the turnaround he does on zebedee and kind of exposing some of the double standards i think it's one of those ones that you know no matter how many will be made it will always be one of the ones that (laughs) that i include in that comparison and the reason i really like that as an approach is because it is a way of bringing home this thing of how much we bring to the text ourselves and and how much we kind of see them in our, own, in our own way and we kind of imagine them in our own way and we're not necessarily in control of what the things are that are influencing us in that respect. And it's very easy to kind of have blind spots or to think that you've, you're taking a rational approach to the text. And what I really like about film is that it forces you to look at these stories which are often over-familiar to people through someone else's eyes. If you know, you have to look at it as the way they've looked at it. And then mm. I think the mature question to ask in that situation is, why do I prefer this version to that version? And is it based on on anything other than a kind of hunch I've got from the way I've been socialized? And perhaps also there's things that you might never have thought of, or things that, for example, some people put these stories on a pedestal and you get this very earthy version with Defoe and Barbara Hershey. Yeah, I find that a really interesting exercise. I mean, it's always interesting to see how people can watch the same clips and some will be very much, I love this one, and others will be like, I hated this one, <laughs> and, and and go for different ones. Do you ever find anybody discomforted by a flawed Jesus? I mean, possibly, but not very, not very often. You know, I am quite careful with what I show to who and would put content advisories around stuff, and, and perhaps that's a weakness or perhaps that's pandering a bit much. But I... 
I guess I kind of understand the level to which people feel strongly about these stories. And yeah, although I, I don't have those sensitivities, I appreciate that people do. So I, I do try not to go out of my way to offend people in, in general. I tend to play it relatively safely and explain to people. So yeah, so I've, as I say, I've not shown some of the material from the temptation scene, which is much harder to deal with, I think, particularly if you're a practicing Christian or all that way inclined. I'm kind of struck because we had a similar thing when we spoke to Michelle Mm. and I'm very struck by both of you gave answers to how do you use this and in what context do you use it in a way which is very, very mindful of where the audience and where learners are at yeah, and to what benefit is showing this. And I think it's come across from both of you very well that the clip drives us and films in general drive us to ask certain questions about ourselves and what we think about Mm. and think about things in different ways but there are ways of using that in a a teaching setting that you you kind of do differently than if you're just doing a film screening so i'm interested particularly in let's say uh, content warnings trigger warnings, wherever they are but then also the framing that might go into well this clip is part of this film and explain some of the backstory so i really like that as Mm. just guidance on well how do i do it people might do it differently but i think that ultimately serves the goal of teaching so well it is tricky to hit that balance because you don't know necessarily where somebody that you're talking to is going to be at i don't know if you've used the passion of the christ as well but that's another one where a lot of people have very very strong opinions about it one way or Mm. another I gave the same lecture on that twice. And the first time I gave a lecture on the Passion of the Christ, I had a student in the class upset because it was a piece of faith for her. And Mm. the second time I did, I tried to soften a little bit of the discussion of anti-Semitism and I didn't, I made sure both times not to just outright call Mel Gibson an anti-Semite because I don't feel that while I'm delivering a lecture that that's my place to do that. And the second mm. time I had a student get quite upset that I was too easy on Mel Gibson and on the anti-Semitism <laughs> in the film, mm. which I was really struck by yeah. because I didn't think I was. <laughs> so, it, yeah, mm. it, it's tricky to hit that balance. I mean, I think that that film, there are such strong opinions about it. But also in terms of showing clips from that film, it's very difficult to show clips from that film because they're nearly all in that kind of 18 violence mm-hmm. bracket. I, I kind of am much more wary of that, I suppose. Interesting, my brother reminded me the other day, my brother's a music teacher, and he actually got taken to task in the Daily Mail because he did a, a piece on the shower scene from Psycho as a, piece of, mm-hmm. as a piece of cinema music with a kind of GCSE age class, and there were complaints, and they and he kind of got torn a strip off in the, in the Daily Mail. I'm kind of wary of that. I think with the book, I pushed myself a little bit to be more outspoken than I would naturally be on certain elements to do with kind of racism and anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Perhaps partly because a lot of the kind of editing and writing I was doing was in the middle of, of the George Floyd case and the Black Lives Matter and, and and a few other of those things. I kind of thought, no, actually, I want to say some of these things. But also being conscious that I think there's a difference between deliberately being overtly anti-Semitic and not being thorough in your questioning of the Christian tradition you've inherited. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been some Jesus films that have been made by people that, well, I think are kind of overtly racist with, with certain things. But 
but I think in most in most cases, I mean, like we were saying, the thing with with the kind of red hair thing um, and, and Judas and the red hair. I don't think Scorsese was deliberately trying to be anti-Semitic in that, but I think essentially, if you're versed in Christian art and and some of the traditions and, and the history of the Passion plays and interpretations of those Gospels, and in, in Gibson's case, uh, a kind of raging anti-Semite as a father, I think it's difficult to escape from that and you have to be very thoroughgoing to kind of work through those things and the sad reality is is it is considered acceptable to not be thoroughgoing with those things and I guess that's one of the things that I I want to challenge but it's difficult it's difficult to do I mean I, I think when the passion came out I was kind of having these conversations and you know trying to make this case about the fact people are you know Jewish groups were raised a lot of concerns about this this is the coming out of this history and and some people i think were, were warm to that but other people were just completely close to the possibility of it and so i i guess i always try and talk about some of those issues in a way that i think will win people around to the perspective i'm trying to point i generally would say i kind of avoid going into the issue of are the gospels anti-semitic mm-hmm. i would work much more with the ideas of how of the choices that have been made and the traditions that have been inherited around that and and how some of those things are. Because I think you can do those things and win over even very conservative people. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think if you go down the route of talking about the, the Gospels as being anti-Semitic, then there's a, a substantial number of people there that they just won't come with you. They'll hear you say the Gospels are racist and their reaction will be no, the gospels are perfect, they're what God says. And so they won't reject the anti Semitism, they'll reject what you're mm-hmm. trying to say. And I think, yeah, unfortunately that group is quite large and quite vocal and it's such such a critical issue that it is one that we need to I guess approach it with a perspective of trying to win people over and trying to help them see some of the issues and rethink some of these things. Which I think is why your PhD, Katie, I think particularly really deals with this well in terms of just that whole wealth of stuff that we bring in that is nothing to do with the written text but massively puts across a kind of anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic impression. Mm-hmm. I think even quite conservative people, if you explain it in the right way, can understand where you're coming from on that and can think some of those things through. But... I think film is a really interesting way to have these kind of discussions mm-hmm. in a nuanced way mm. because outside of some films that are made they're really a product of many hands and many viewpoints working together to create a vision so as we pointed out in this one are the costuming conveys lots of orientalist messages maybe that's employed in a way which means that there's at least a purpose to creating this kind of world but Mm. other elements you can see that they have made an effort to try and engage with certain ideas or to be fair to other viewpoints you don't necessarily need to go well oh this film is anti-semitic but you can start to pull apart well the framing of this or how they've gone about this dialogue or this characterization adds to that and reinforces Mm -hmm. that harmful trope and then you you have these other elements. I think this film does that really well because Judas is portrayed as a complex character and mm. quite compelling and I kind of quite like it. But then there are the negative elements to it. So you, you have that sense of, well, this isn't 
just dreadful or beyond reproach. Yeah, I agree with that, really. So it seems like that's really how you're approaching The Last Temptation when you use it as a pedagogical device, is getting people to think about what they're bringing to mm. what they're looking at, what they're receiving, or what they're reading in the biblical text itself. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, certainly that's one of the key things I, I'm always looking to to get people to think about. Because, you know, no Jesus film is going to accurately portray things as they were you know even if you get mel gibson's approach to language and and all these other bits and pieces you know the past is is gone (laughs) even if you were to kind of like send a video camera back in time and to record it all it would it is not an achievable thing and this is this is jesus films are really in the area of reception history and how we understand those stories and how we think about those stories and how we feel about those stories and and how they move us or challenge us or change us so i think i think you can use them to make useful historical points and i think there's been you know some excellent work done with that or mark goodacre wrote, wrote an excellent paper probably about 20 years ago relating to kind of use of jesus films and the and the synoptic problem i think as i was saying that bit about the the way that the servant on the plane is put across in this film you know you can use that to explore some interesting historical ideas about texts but at the end of the day we just don't know enough about jesus's world to be able to say well this one was how it actually happened (laughs) or more how it actually happened or this was correct because you know we don't know how much jesus worked on his own stuff versus how much the apostles did there's obviously lots of people and, and people of faith would want to say that most of the the gospels are fairly close to what happened but I think from more of a kind of historical studies, biblical studies kind of point of view, then, you know, you can make a case for either thing, that Jesus was a kind of minor miracle worker and, word, you know, grander words got put in his lips, or that Jesus was a great orator and miracles got attributed to him, or that he did a bit of both and things grew, or that he did stacks and stacks and the Gospels really were a chopping down of all the edited highlights type of fair. But at the end of the day, we have, you know, about a couple of hours worth of reading material for the life of 30 plus years mm-hmm. and so it's so i think it does come down to that issue of reception history and and rethinking some of our assumptions and rethinking what we know and what it says to us and, and where and where we are in it and perhaps in that process then we can learn something about ourselves but also about some of these issues as well but one of the approaches i first took when i was doing this was i guess trying to find something that fitted better with my own mental image and I quickly realised that was completely the wrong way around. <laughs> and, it was, and one of the things that was interesting about biblical films is that they make you look at it from someone else's perspective and think of things you'd never have thought of on your own. Scorsese certainly has a very strong perspective too, so it really yeah. makes it clear that that's what you are you are watching somebody else's perspective. And so I think that text mm. at the front also helps with that. It's setting that up right away, like this is someone else's yeah. perspective. Are there any books or articles that deal with The Last Temptation of Christ that you think are particularly good for the student or researcher interested? There's four that uh, I think are, are are kind of invaluable in this, really. The first is the novel. Uh, we've talked mm. about that already. Then uh, there's a book called Scorsese on Scorsese, which he, he kind of talks about. I mean, he talks about his whole career on that, but he talks particularly about this film. That's quite interesting. And that's where the quote about get to know Jesus better. And there's another great quote I use a lot about him wanting to make the life of Jesus immediate and accessible to people who haven't really thought about God in a long time. And a whole bunch of other really good kind of 
quotes in there and bits about the background of the story. And then there's two books that are dedicated to the film. Well, sorry, one of them is uh, Scandalising Jesus. It's an edited collection edited by Darren Middleton. Actually, half of the book is about of the novel and the second half is about the film. Scorsese, I think, contributes an introduction to that or a forward or something. But there's a bunch of scholars looking at things from different views and art history and, and a bunch of uh, other things there. The other one is Hollywood Under Siege by, I think it's Thomas Lindelof. And so this is a kind of a full... He tells he tells it as quite a good kind of story, and he talks a lot about both what was happening in terms of Scorsese's camp or the kind of universal picture and the process they're going through, and then intertwining, almost kind of like breaking it up by talking about what was going in some of the leading church organisations, particularly in the states, as they're starting to prepare a campaign and how they're hearing about stuff. And I think one of the interesting points that came through about that was about amongst the people that made a lot of money from the film were some of those groups. Mm. And perhaps that all went to salaries and so on, but you know, I found that a very interesting perspective that actually people either grew their own reputations or grew their own ministries or or whatever off the back of this film. And that wasn't necessarily done from a from a bad place, although perhaps you know some of it some of it was, particularly seeing how that strain of Christianity has uh, evolved in the last few years. But that isn't the only point the book makes by any any stretch. It's a really interesting look at the process of that film coming and, and the, the scandal and, and some of the, the story of it kind of arriving on the screens. And so that's that's uh, an interesting one as well. I actually just started reading that book today, funnily enough, Hollywood oh, right. Under Siege. Yeah, oh, it was re- really enjoyable. Yeah, enjoyed reading it when I, when I did it. So Thanks again to our guest, Matt Page, for his extra time today. As always, you can follow us at Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also contact us or donate on our website, godsandmoviemakers.com. Thanks for listening and thanks for subscribing. Until next time, I'm Joe Scales. And I'm Katie Turner.